welcome to the Shoulder Physio Podcast, a podcast dedicated to exploring meaningful topics in musculoskeletal healthcare. I'm your host, Jared Powell. Before we begin, the primary purpose of this podcast is to educate and inform. The views expressed in this podcast by myself and any guests are information only, do not constitute professional advice and are general in nature. If you act on the basis of any podcast episode, you should obtain specific advice from a qualified health professional before proceeding. Today's guest is me. I was privileged to be interviewed by the brilliant team at E3 Rehab on the topic of shoulder impingement. I've been a vocal dissenter of this diagnostic label for a number of years now, and I've taught this in my courses and written papers about it. In this episode, I take you on a tour de force of why I don't like the term and discuss alternatives to shoulder impingement that might better fit contemporary evidence. Before we get into the nitty gritty of the conversation and for your information, for the first time in two years, I'm running my one day shoulder workshop in Sydney and Melbourne in May and June, 2022. Tickets are limited to 30 participants. The course offers a complete distillation of the evidence base for shoulder pain management, equipping you with up-to-date knowledge, techniques, and clinical reasoning skills that are clinically actionable. If this is something that you are interested in, check the show notes for more information. Without any further delay, I bring to you my conversation with E3 Rehab about shoulder impingement. All right. Do you mind introducing yourself to the listeners? Hi, so my name is Jared Powell. I am a physiotherapist from Australia. I have a keen interest in shoulders, as I hopefully can convey to you today. I love science, I love sport, and I dislike deliberate misinformation, as again, you, you might get the gist of today. So that's that's me. All right, well, let's jump into it. So today we're discussing the history and evolution of the diagnosis of shoulder impingement. So let's kind of just start with what is it and when, where, and how did this diagnosis come to be? Who, what, when, where, what? Yeah, so this is, this is a, it's a good question because we need to figure out where we're coming from. I think everything should be looked at in the context of history. So if we go back in time, we go back into the 1900s, a long time ago now, there were some rumblings in sort of the 1940s about this impingement thing. But nobody really ever termed or formalized this label shoulder impingement, not until until the 1970s when the famous demigod Charles Neer, the trailblazing American orthopedic surgeon, popularized and crystallized and formalized this term shoulder impingement. And he did this by publishing a case series basically in the 1970s. And, 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 and Charles Neer... I sort of don't want to diminish, diminish the work of, of Nier. I think he did fabulous work and advanced the profession at the time, to be honest. And I think it was a really plausible hypothesis uh, 50 years ago. Just now with, with, with all the evidence that we have, unfortunately, it hasn't stood up to rigorous investigation, but we won't go down that, that pathway just yet. So, so Charles Nier stated in 1972, I believe, that 95% of all rotator cuff tears were caused by this mechanical abrasion of the rotator cuff, mostly the supraspinatus, against the overlying acromion. And he was really confident in this assertion uh, back in the 1970s. And he thought trauma maybe worsened rotator cuff tears, but it didn't cause rotator cuff tears. So the cause was nine out of 10 times or even more this mechanical abrasion of structures within the subacromial space 
against the overlying acromion. So the history is that there was this, there were sort of rumblings about uh, impingement in the 1940s, like I suggested. This was crystallized by Charles Near in the 1970s, and it's basically to do with this mechanical abrasion of structures within the subacromial space underneath the overlying acromion of the scapula. That's my interpretation of it. And just to go into a little bit more depth, you know, he came up with this hypothesis or this theory. Can you explain the evidence that he was using to? explain that yeah it's just observation effectively so 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 near is a surgeon obviously and he was opening people up and observing their their rotator cuff also associating that with a with an acromion which was either type one type two or type three and he thought he saw an association between a type three which is a hooked acromion which we may which you may have been taught about at university and he thought that the presence of this hooked acromion was an issue that was causing pathology within the subacromial space. And then, coincidentally, he invented a surgical procedure to fix this, this, this type 3, this naughty type 3 acromion, which was called an acromioplasty procedure, which has become you know ubiquitous and instantiated in, in medicine all around the world. And millions of people have undergone this procedure. I think it's, unre- it's not unreasonable to say over the past 50 years. Yeah, I'm I'm sure we'll touch on that evidence a little bit more later. And just to clarify, you know, impingement is often categorized as primary impingement, secondary impingement, internal impingement, and I'm sure there's other ones out there. Are we grouping all of these together or is our discussion today only applicable to certain classifications? Yeah, yeah, good question. So uh, I'm referring mainly to this concept of external impingement today, which is issues of the subacromial space. So, so primary external impingement is this notion or concept or theory of a naughty acromion that is either type one or type two or type three, like I said a moment ago, and then acromion type two and mostly type three cause issues of the subacromial space because they're hooked and they, they are meant to cause mechanical abrasion of the subacromial space. So that's, that's the primary external classification of shoulder impingement. And then there's the secondary external subacromial impingement, which is probably more important for physiotherapists, which is more issues of motor control and posture and how, how these issues can lead to uh, changes in the subacromial space, usually via changes in the scapular position, which is then meant to lead to the onset of, of impingement type symptoms. So, so, so secondary external impingement is like a motor control issue of tight pecs or an overactive deltoid or weak scapular stabilizers or upper cross syndrome or whatever other invented diagnosis is out there, which leads to issues with the scapula, which leads to a reduction in the subacromial space, which leads to eventually impingement related symptoms. And then internal impingement is a little bit different. Internal impingement deals with the concept or the theory that the supraspinatus and the infraspinatus can become impinged or irritated into abduction and external rotation against the posterior superior glenoid rim. So this is common in throwing athletes who might get back into that abduction external rotation position and they might have pain there. And then we theorize that this might be due to this phenomena of internal impingement, which is uh, different from acromial impingement. Great. I think those are great um, definitions. So thinking about this and this diagnosis that came about 1972, the, the surgery that came from it, you know, how did this diagnosis influence our understanding and 
management of shoulder pain. And I guess you could talk about it from a physio perspective and also the the surgical perspective, which you've already touched on. Yeah, it's been really influential. So shoulder impingement becoming instantiated in, you know, everyday clinical parlance all over the world has has basically led to this to biomechanical factors, structural factors, et cetera, et cetera, occupying this privileged position in the possible causation and then resolution of uh, non-traumatic shoulder pain. So, so as I suggested a moment ago, we became really obsessed with the acromial shape. So we'd go out and get imaging to determine what, what shape this acromion was. We would microscopically look at, look at movement of the shoulder complex. We would get the plumb line out to have a look at thoracic posture. We would measure pec minor length. We would observe what the scapula was doing to see if it was behaving nicely. We invented all of these complex and nuanced interventions to, to fix somebody's muscle timing and activity, to then fix somebody's shoulder blade position, to then fix their impingement symptoms. So that's just from a physiotherapy perspective. We had people sort of laying on foam rollers for hours a day to try and reverse their thoracic kyphosis. We, you know, subacromial corticosteroid injections became, God knows how many people have had a subacromial corticosteroid injection over the last 50 years. The mind boggles. I'm not against these injections, but I certainly don't think they should occupy a primary position in non-traumatic shoulder pain. And then we've got the surgical uh, techniques that were invented where, as I mentioned a moment ago, there was this huge exponential increase in subacromial decompression or acromioplasty procedures uh, 20 or so years ago with the advent of arthroscopic surgeries. And I think the statistic that's it's famously uh, thrown out there is between 2000 and 2010, between that decade, uh, arthroscopic subacromial decompression surgeries increased by 746% in the UK. And I'm sure there are comparable numbers all around the world. Now, the big question comes, are these subacromial de- decompression surgeries still being done at such a significant rate? And sort of the answer is that annoyingly they are, particularly in the US, the, the rate hasn't changed over the last decade, even in the face of some evidence, which completely challenges the notion of impingement and the efficacy of the operation, which is shown to be no better than placebo surgery. Fortunately, in, excuse me, in the UK, these rates have come down a little bit. So maybe they're listening to evidence, but unfortunately um, in, in the US, there's been no change in subacromial decompression surgeries over the last five years, despite some really good randomized controlled trials saying that this surgery is not superior to placebo surgery. So just, just let that sink in for a moment. This surgery, which millions of people have undergone, is not efficacious. It's not better than a fake surgery. So that's so that's something that we should be embarrassed about, I think, in the in the medical fraternity. Yeah, it's pretty wild to hear that statistic of, you know, that over 700% growth and then hearing that after, you know, these trials have come out that in the US at least, that number hasn't declined. And so it is, it's 2022, it's 50 years later. And obviously we're already getting your interpretation here, but yeah, give us your interpretation of the literature and just the usefulness of shoulder or subacromial impingement syndrome as a diagnosis. So quite plainly, I think shoulder impingement is, a, is not useful as a diagnostic label and it's, it's not valid as a diagnostic label either. So it's flawed from a number of different perspectives. We know that, that most people around the world will have impingement in their shoulder when they elevate their arm into the air. It's as simple as that. The data that we have is that about 50% of people have a chromial impingement 
when they lift their arm up into the air. I think the data, the the real statistics are probably more. We just have to take, you know, we have to take a snapshot of people. We can't go and do a randomized control trial on 7 billion people, as far as I'm aware. So, so most people, we can say that when they lift their arm into the air, there, there is possibly some form of impingement in their shoulder. But these people aren't more likely to have symptoms than people who don't impinge their arm into the air. So it's kind of like having an asymptomatic rotator cuff tear or an asymptomatic disc bulge or something like that. It is really quite normal. We also know that the subacromial space is not any different between people with shoulder pain and those people without shoulder pain. So if you were to, to take, get an ultrasound and measure the acromiohumeral distance, which is a measure of the subacromial space between people with impingement who have been diagnosed with impingement and people who are asymptomatic, there's no difference. We would be unable to determine based simply on that measure if somebody has pain or not. So, so that's, that's challenging to this notion of subacromial impingement. And then we know that subacromial space distance or acromiohumeral distance doesn't need to increase or change for somebody who has shoulder impingement to get better in terms of pain or function. So their subacromial space can remain exactly the same and yet they, their shoulder pain and function can improve. So maybe the subacromial space is not a mediating variable for somebody getting better um, who presents to us with non-traumatic shoulder pain. In fact, there was a study, I'm just reminded of it right now, which came out just last year in 2021, which showed that people with shoulder impingement have bigger subacromial spaces relative to people with relative to people without shoulder pain so i mean if you ever needed evidence to falsify a theory that's it we probably should end the podcast here but i'll keep going because i love talking about this stuff what else is there so uh in terms of in terms of the acromion type that's another conjecture as well i think the acromion is still relevant and i actually do admit that those with a type 3 acromion might be at more risk of developing a rotator cuff tear, but we know that developing a rotator cuff tear is multidimensional and multifactorial. It's due to a number of different factors, like, and most of them are non-modifiable, such as age, such as uh, gender or sex, such as occupation, such as genetics, all of these type of things. So there's like, there's probably an, an infinite amount of factors that can lead to the onset of a rotator cuff tear, yet we, we choose to spend all our energy, or we have chosen to spend all our, our energy on one dimension of that, which doesn't make any sense to me. So what, what else? Where am I? So shoulder impingement, the subacromial space is similar in people with and without pain. The subacromial space doesn't really change over time. Placebo surgery is just as effective as real surgery. Developing a rotator cuff tear is multifactorial and multidimensional. So these are just some of the things that we're aware of now in 2022, which I reckon challenge this concept of shoulder impingement to a point where we have to stop using this term almost immediately because it is untenable. Is this one of those things, though, that you think it's going to take another 50 years before the physio profession de-adopts it? Like, is it too ingrained? Are these large social media uh, followings or the people with large social media followings still pushing it so hard that it's just, yeah, hard to, to de-adopt yeah. that? Yeah, that's, I mean, what's that number thrown around? 17 years for research to be adopted into clinical practice. I'm totally aware that that's what we're dealing with here, and then, but I'm 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 also aware that we're dealing we're in a time now where information is so readily available, and so and can be so readily adopted that I think that 
that that number might be different in, in this information age where we all have access to PubMed at the click of a button or where we have access to evidence-informed social media accounts. You know, I know that there are bad social media accounts out there as well, but there's more and more and more evidence-based social media accounts that are propping up all over the place that are challenging um, some of these larger accounts that tend to spread misinformation. So I'm always optimistic when it comes to this sort of stuff. However, you know, I, I'm not, I'm not, I don't have my head in the sand. I know that there are some barriers to this being implemented, you know, just going back to shoulder impingement and, and, and this, and the validity of the label, we also have to think about the qualitative research that we have coming out and how people who are diagnosed with shoulder impingement actually perceive what is going on. So they perceive the causal explanation for their pain to be due to their, their acromion ripping into the tendons of their, of their subacromial space. And this, it sounds horrifying when you think about it. Why on earth would this person want to elevate their arm in the air when they perceive or think that this acromion, this demon structure is hooking in to the rotator cuff tendons. And obviously it's going to promote fear in some and perhaps some anxiety and some apprehension of movement and some kinesiophobia. And, and again, we've got a recent randomized controlled trial by Zadro et al., which shows that those people who are given a diagnosis of shoulder impingement or a rotator cuff tear have a higher perceived need for more medical management. So those people think that they need more medical imaging and they think that they often need surgery more than other people who are given other diagnostic labels. So, so when you think about the qualitative research and us as physiotherapists or physical therapists or whatever, osteopath, chiropractors, and we know how prognostic or how important patient expectations are to recovery and that if, and if a patient actually thinks that their chromium is digging into their shoulder that physio can't fix because no amount of physio can fix can fix a bone spur and these are quotes that have actually been being given to us in the literature it's a mechanical issue that requires a mechanical fix then what hope does physiotherapy have of helping somebody if that is their expectations going into physiotherapy. So I believe we're shooting ourselves in the foot by using this label. Not only is it valid, perhaps it's harmful, and it's certainly not going to help physiotherapeutic management of this condition as well. Yeah, it's, it's a bit odd from the physio profession in terms of that contradiction, contradiction in, in the sense that we're saying you have this mechanical problem, but we're going to try to do some exercises for it rather than yeah. you have this mechanical problem, just go get surgery and get it fixed. So yeah, what do you think we should call this non-traumatic shoulder pain instead? And I mean, you've already discussed why it matters, maybe why we should move away from using that terminology. So this is a contentious point. So this is, so, so diagnostic labeling is really a hot topic at the moment in musculoskeletal medicine. You know, I think we should call it something. I, I, I don't think shoulder pain is sufficient. So I don't think it's Voldemort that he who should not be named or, or she who should not be named. I think we do need to affix a label to this clinical presentation for medical legal um, purposes, for insurance purposes, for professional collaboration between clinicians, for social validation purposes from a patient's perspective, for research purposes. How are we going to research a condition that we can't name? So I think a diagnostic label is really important. So then, so then where do we go? So how I see it, and I'm actually we're actually writing a paper on this at the moment, is there's two sides to the debate. There is the abandoned diagnostic label, and that's one side, and they're very passionate about that. And there's been some evidence come out recently 
to sort of summarise their position. I think I think it's an interesting position. And then on the other side of the debate is the conservation to let these rotator cuff tear terms remain, to let shoulder impingement term remains. Who cares what label it is? They care more about the explanation and blah 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 blah. So that so how I see it, there's two sides of the debate: get rid of these labels or retain these labels. And I think there's a middle ground, which is great. So as, as you guys might know, a friend of mine and co-conspirator of mine is Jeremy Lewis, and he has advocated for the term rotator cuff-related shoulder pain, which is uh, which is a contentious diagnostic label. Some people think it's the devil's work and don't like it, whereas other people sort of look at it as the savior. I think it's a decent term, and I think it warrants discussion, and I tend to use that in my clinical practice. So I know that Jeremy actually proposed this term to serve as a middle ground term between these two sides of the debate. And rotator cuff related shoulder pain does not mention pathology at all. It mentions a structure, which some people don't like, and that structure is the rotator cuff. And so, so that's, that's a fair criticism, but it doesn't mention a tear. It doesn't mention an impingement process. It doesn't mention a syndrome, which subacromial pain syndrome does, which might have negative connotations as well. So rotator cuff-related shoulder pain is, whilst it references a structure, it stops short of affixing a front-of-mind biomedical pathology, which might result in fear or anxiety or apprehension or catastrophizing on behalf of the patient. But what it offers is, is a diagnostic label that that patient can perhaps go home and talk to their partner about, talk to their doctor about, and they can, they can conceptualize what's happening with their shoulder pain rather than just saying it's non-specific shoulder pain or something like that. And so what you do when you ask people, well, have you heard of uh, rotator cuff related shoulder pain? They'll say, no, I haven't, but I've heard of rotator cuff. And then you say, great, what is the rotator cuff? And I say, it's maybe a muscle or a tendon in my shoulder, or they might say rotary, rotary cuff, which is, which is common, but it's rotator cuff. And then you say, great, well, what, is, what do muscles and tendons do? And they say, they move, they, they might respond to exercise. So, so what, where I think the power in this term comes from from, is that it might make our job easier to sell exercise as a primary intervention rather than having them fixate on mechanical issues that need surgical correction or an injection or something like that. Another term that I don't mind is subacromial shoulder pain. Um, but if you type in subacromial into Google, straight away, this is conflated with subacromial impingement. So, so that's an issue as well. So where I stand right now, I think rotator cuff related shoulder pain is the best label to affix to this clinical presentation of non-traumatic shoulder pain, where there's no instability or stiffness. But I'm open to having my mind changed in the future uh, with better evidence. So that's how I see it right now. Yeah. And so if you prefer moving away from impingement and tear, because those terms do maybe give the impression that surgery is required and we're using this rotator cuff related shoulder pain to describe this non-traumatic shoulder pain. And now we as physios are trying to describe what we're doing to patients or for patients um, or, you know, among one another, what exactly are we doing to help the shoulder pain? Like what are our interventions doing? How are we uh, treating it? Yeah. This is, this is the million dollar question. And this is the whole reason for my existence, actually. And this is what my PhD is actually on. So we're, we're talking about mechanisms. And so let's stick mainly to exercise because I'm not an expert on manual therapy mechanisms. I think you should go and read the work of 
uh, Joel Bialowski, if you want to, if you want to understand more about mechanisms of manual therapy. So, so let's say someone presents to us, they have non-traumatic shoulder pain. It's insidious onset. There's no stiffness. There's no red flags and there's no instability. We give somebody, we give this person an exercise program and they get better or they improve after 12 weeks. What's happening? What, what's the mechanisms that underpin that? If we're not changing impingement or the subacromial space or anything like that, which I've just spent uh, 10 minutes or so uh, trying to refute. So mechanisms are really, 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 really hot topic at the moment and popular topic within uh, popular topic within musculoskeletal medicine. So the mechanisms speak to how and why an intervention is working. And so there, with shoulder pain or within rotator cuff related shoulder pain, there are over 30 mechanisms which are theorized to explain the effectiveness of an exercise program. And so, so, so we have no firm evidence to actually say whether any of these mechanisms are actually valid, but I can hypothesize. So some of these mechanisms which are thrown out there are, is it simply just increasing strength? Is it increasing the strength of the rotator cuff or deltoid or the entire shoulder complex? And that that's a reasonable, that's a reasonable hypothesis. Some people believe that. I've published some work that maybe challenges that a little bit and you don't have to get tangibly stronger in your shoulder in order to improve your pain and function. But I think doing strengthening exercise is bloody important for this condition. And it is my, it is my number one bias, but you just don't have to get strong, but that's cool. So, so that's, that's one area. That's, that's one mechanism that's been proposed. Another mechanism that's been proposed is it's correcting scapular dyskinesis, for example, but we, we know the evidence doesn't really support that. Are we changing muscle timing and activity or motor control? That's another mechanism. And we have evidence that kind of refutes that as well. Are we changing psychological variables? So are we changing how somebody perceives their shoulder pain? Maybe we haven't really investigated that in shoulder pain. We've investigated that in non-specific low back pain. We know that fear avoidance, pain catastrophizing, and kinesiophobia are mediating factors of recovery. So perhaps that applies to shoulder pain as well. Are we changing, and this is an important point, are we changing the biochemical milieu or environment of the shoulder? Are we flushing out substance P somehow from the bursa or from the from the supraspinatus tendon? Are we changing inflammatory uh, cellular bio uh, cellular inflammatory markers within the rotator cuff tendon tissue? And we have some evidence to support that as well. Are we changing emotional factors? Are we simply marking time while nature takes it takes its course are we providing a distraction you know are, are we just entertaining the patient while regression to the mean and natural history just do their thing you know there's, there's there's so many mechanisms that have been proposed are we increasing the stiffness of the rotator cuff tendons or improving the capacity and robustness and resilience of the shoulder and of the person are we promoting healing this was a popular mechanism that uh, we used to think occurred quite a while ago with patellar tendinopathy and Achilles tendinopathy that eccentric loading, et cetera, et cetera, was promoting a healing response within the tendon. And that's been challenged more recently. So in answer to your question, guys, I can't give you an answer. I've got a lot of hypotheticals that we're hoping to test, but we really have no one mechanism or even a handful of mechanisms that we can say are leading to the resolution of shoulder pain and improvement in function in people who present to us. Or maybe, maybe it's just so complex that it is that it is a combination of all the mechanisms that I proposed and they all interact together and they sort of emerge into this, 
emerge into this this higher order thing that 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 pain reduces and function improves. Maybe that's the case, or maybe it's just different in every single individual, and it's a waste of time waste of time trying to figure it out. I don't know. So I hope I didn't create more confusion there. But I definitely. I definitely can say based on the literature at the time of recording in February 2022 that impingement or changing impingement is probably the least valid hypothesis that we have right now. So given that you're outlining the distinct flaws in his previous approach on the mechanistic theory on shoulder impingement, the flaw with the diagnosis, all these things, but you're outlining that we do see that exercise is beneficial. Is it specific exercise? Are there categories of movements that we should be focusing on? Are there certain theories along those guidelines of possible benefits of the mechanisms that then guide choosing exercises and interventions? Good question, Sam. So specific exercise. So let's break this down a little bit. So exercise type, let's start there. So resistance exercise versus stretching exercise versus motor control exercise versus proprioceptive versus plyometric versus mobility, whatever the fuck you want to call it all of these exercise modalities or types are non-superior to each other and so this is this is a frustration for me because my, my bias is resistance exercise and I don't despise motor control exercise but it annoys me how complex it is and how the barriers to giving it prescribing it and also trying to explain it to a patient and what they think you're trying to do so but we have we have evidence that suggests that a simple resistance exercise like a non-specific resistance exercise regimen like doing external rotation exercise and escaption or lateral raise exercise is just as effective as a convoluted complex motor control exercise regimen so 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 within that when when we have a situation that arises where there is no one best treatment or no one not one best exercise this is why we invented or came up with this thing called patient-centered care and shared decision making when everything's kind of equivocal and equal in terms of its effectiveness then you've got to ask the patient what they would prefer to do because you have no evidence to suggest that this intervention is better than the other. So this is where shared decision-making becomes really, really important. So basically, basically, in answer to your question, there is no one best exercise. There is not one best exercise type. Maybe progressive exercise is better than non-progressive exercise, which kind of makes sense. So progressively increasing reps or time under tension or whatever, whatever, whatever dosage variables you want to count, changing that seems to be more beneficial than not. And again, that is my bias. There was a great systematic review published in 2015 by Chris Littlewood, which kind of mapped mapped out the exercise parameters and it said it said it said things like three sets were better than two sets apparently it said that resistance exercise might be a little bit better than non-resistance exercise but we don't know whether this reaches clinical significance what else is there exercising into pain might not be any different than avoiding pain so on and so forth so it's a it's a little bit the literature is a little bit disheartening at this point of time if you're a therapist that says okay i want an algorithm to tell me how to fix this patient in front of me unfortunately there's not going to be that recommendation out there i think we need to take the entirety of the literature into account and then we need to ask the patient what what they've done in the past or what they would like to do and then collaboratively between the clinician and the patient you can devise an exercise program that they're likely to adhere to and i think that results in the be- the best outcomes for the patient and let's assume that we have two groups of listeners right now one who's been trying to integrate some of this 
you know, research uh, into their practice and and moving away from some of these flawed mechanisms and descriptions. And then maybe another group who's hearing this for the first time, right? Like, do you have recommendations on how both or either group can start implementing this into their practice, whether it's with their descriptions, with its with their exercise prescription, uh, et cetera? Yeah. So I think, th- I think the first thing is the, the label that we term this condition. And I think that that's a really good place to start. So the causal explanation for what's causing somebody's pain is, is where we need to start because how we speak about a health condition, I think really sets up how we manage a health condition and also how a patient perceives their health condition as well. And health professionals have immense power when it comes to the beliefs uh, that patients end up developing. Most, be- most beliefs from patients actually come from their healthcare professionals. So I think it starts there. And that's why I rail really quite hard against terms, which may actually worsen outcomes such as rotator cuff tear and such as shoulder impingement. And then I think it comes down to just being informed on, on how exercise might work and how, and how our management might work. And just, be, and just appreciate the complexity of a patient and clinician interaction and the many different ways that a that a clinician can help a patient without actually giving them this convoluted specific biomedically oriented advice which has not been shown to be right so straight away just listening to the patient listening to their story listening to their narrative trying to understand where their shoulder pain fits in to this person's life like how are they perceiving their shoulder pain have they been told in the past that yes it's an acromion digging into their rotator cuff tear have they been told that lifting their arm makes their rotator cuff tear worse have they been told that exercising makes their rotator cuff tear worse have they been told that they have a bursitis that's getting pinched and bunched up when they abduct their arm? Have they been told that they need injections every year for the rest of their life? Have they been told that they have arthritis in their AC joint or glenohumeral joint? So, so straight away asking that person, well, hey, how do you perceive your pain? What have you been told in the past and what's your interpretation or evaluation or analysis of what's going on? And then you can chime in in a non-patronizing way and say, and, and give your piece of um, expertise, which is, so your place is a clinician is an expert, a content expert in all the research evidence that's out there. So I kind of don't have any time for clinicians who say I don't have time to read it, to read evidence because that's such a cop out. You are you are a physiotherapist or a physical therapist that is an applied science degree. So you need to stay true to that, and you need to read not all of, you need to read some form of literature and then follow other people who read more literature and then listen to podcasts and, and read books and watch YouTube videos. In, in this information age, there is no excuse for not having come across literature that's been published in the past decade. So that's, so that's the first thing there. So you really need to be aware in, in part or in brief of what's going out there in the latest evidence. You don't need to go into the, to the complexity of the, of the statistics and the confidence interval and all this sorts of stuff. Let the other experts deal with all that stuff and you can read their conclusions. So that's why your guys' company is great. And there's some really other good companies out there as well, which kind of distill and synthesize the evidence. So well done, shout out, shout out to E3. And so where was I with this question? So how can clinicians help? So, so the first thing is changing the label. The second thing is reading a bit of evidence every now and then. The third thing is being aware of the complexity, complexity associated with a patient-clinician interaction. Reassuring somebody can be really helpful. All right. Just saying that you don't have a sinister pathology within your shoulder and you're not going to wear your rotator cuff out when you lift it can be really helpful for somebody who is trying to overcome their fear and apprehension of, of elevating their shoulder into the air. So, so these are some, some commonplace 
places to start. Then you go into exercise and you, and you can actually quote some evidence and you can say that exercise is just as effective as surgery. Exercise is just as effective as injection therapy. Exercise has none of or, or one millionth of the uh, possible toxic side effects of, of surgery and an injection. And it also helps your general health. It might, might help your health-related quality of life. It might help you uh, psychologically. It might help your musculoskeletal, cardiometabolic system. Do I need to keep going there? So all of these secondary or even primary effects of exercise kind of sell themselves when it comes to managing somebody with, with non-traumatic shoulder pain. So, so I think there's a number of things that clinicians can do to move away from this kind of old school dogmatic way and biomedically oriented way of managing somebody with uh, quote unquote shoulder impingement and more towards this holistic, humanistic 21st century uh, way of managing somebody with non-traumatic shoulder pain. Are there any other myths or misconceptions related to the shoulder that you want to address? Yeah. So there's well, look. There's the shoulder is plagued by misinformation for some reason. Uh, so I reckon the shoulder now is like 20 years behind low back pain, and so maybe in 20 years' time we'll have as much information as we have about low back pain. Not that low back pain is, you know, there's still a lot of misinformation about low back pain, but I think the shoulder is at another level. So, so other other issues that I have: the scapula. The scapula has issues from the ground up. We. There's issues with the reliability of testing scapular dyskinesis. Visual observation observation of the scapula is almost entirely flawed. The scapular scapular dyskinesis doesn't need to change for pain and function to improve. That's that's pretty clear. So you can stop fixating about the scapula. Stretching stretching is not the worst exercise in the world. Stretching gets a bad rap relative to other interventions, other more sexy interventions such as strengthening. But stretching helps people when you actually look at it from an evidence-based perspective. And I've had to actually modify my beliefs on that in the last couple of years. We've had some clinical trials come out that show that stretching is an effective intervention for people with subacromial shoulder pain or rotator cuff-related shoulder pain. We've got we've got misinformation as it relates to surgery, but we've kind of discussed that. Subacromial injection therapy is basically, the statistic is a subacromial corticosteroid injection is effective 20% of the time. So that's one in five people will have some sort of an effect with a subacromial corticosteroid injection. And we don't really, and, and this might be associated with some toxic or catabolic effects on local soft tissue that we're still investigating. So why on earth would we inject something into somebody's shoulder where we, we don't really have any idea of what's going on from a biological perspective with that injection that only works one in every five times. Now I get that they have a place if somebody has failed or not sufficiently improved with a with an exercise based program or something like that i think they serve as a necessary elevation of care before surgery but certainly they should not be offered in the first 6 or 12 weeks of somebody developing these symptoms so injections have a lot of dubious evidence for them as we said a moment ago there is not one best exercise which means that there is no single exercise that must be in every single exercise program. And there is also no universally bad exercise that needs to be avoided. Now, I've seen a lot of stuff on social media recently where the empty can exercise or the upright row exercise have been 
have been demonized as causing impingement and causing pain. And I see like these red arrows on videos of people doing, uh, red crosses, sorry, on videos of people doing these exercises and saying, this is the worst exercise you can do for shoulder pain with an exclamation mark in, in capital letters. And it's just not true. It's an opinion based on some person's experience. And that's fine. They're allowed to have an opinion. But when they're promoting themselves to be evidence-based and they're actually promoting health-based advice to vulnerable people, I really think they need to do better and actually read some damn research. And they might find, and they might be quite surprised that what they're actually promoting is not only wrong, but also harmful and nocebic to the population at large. So there's some, there's some of my pet peeves when it comes to the shoulder. There are more, but I've just forgotten for the moment. You know, we made a, a video on the upright row a while back. And recently I, I posted about it again and got a lot of pushback and it was, I probably shouldn't have posted it. I was in the middle of moving states. And so I wasn't as like thorough and mindful with my responses, but yeah, those, those kind of posts are exhausting too. Just going back yeah. and forth with people in comments or, or DMs, even if you are really respectful, you don't always uh, get that back. No, social media is a wild place and it doesn't really, uh, it doesn't really promote rationalism. <laughs> it, it promotes, it, it's emotionally charged. And I understand that. So whenever I get hate or I comment on a big account and I say, can you please explain? This is kind of wrong. I, I, I just laugh at some of the responses and I'm not laughing in a, in a patronizing way. I'm just like, well, what, what can you do? You know, you're not going to change someone's mind on a social media comment. I just think it's important sometimes to chime in every now and then to present an alternative viewpoint, maybe plant a seed. And then maybe in five years time, 10 years time, that person might remember that one comment on Instagram and it might change their life. Maybe. Yeah. In addition to probably linking some other stuff in the show notes, I don't know if you've read this paper. I read it probably half a dozen times early in my career. And I just brought it up because everything that you're talking about made me think of it. So it's Becoming a Physician, Tolerating Uncertainty, The Next Medical Revolution by Simpkin and Schwartzstein. It's literally a two-page perspective, but I'm, I'm going to link that in the show notes because I think what you're providing to the listeners is going to yeah probably create some uncertainty. And I think it's, it's okay uh, and I th yeah, it's a two-page paper and it's, I think it's really helpful. Yeah, I think, look, I understand the friction between wanting certainty and the evidence base, which reveals that everything's kind of, kind of uncertain. I understand that friction. I've experienced it myself and that's kind of led me to doing a PhD and, and, and starting a social media account and doing all this stuff because I, I, was, I had an existential crisis, honestly, about eight, nine years ago when, um, so I graduated about 10 years ago and then I started working and then I started to see evidence coming in that falsified my belief system. And also what I was doing in clinical practice wasn't really working sometimes. And I had no explanation for why. So it forced me to do a bit of a deep dive into the literature and it was uncomfortable. It was very uncomfortable. And so I understand why people want to avoid that. That's built into us from an evolutionary perspective to avoid uncertainty you know we can talk about predictive process, processing and stuff there where we're kind of we're, we're intrinsically wired to 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 have our predictions come true which is our beliefs come true and we seek out information to verify our predictions and our beliefs and we avoid information which um which refutes our beliefs anyway so so tolerating uncertainty can be really hard but there are there are many as i said a moment ago just because our interventions are a little bit uncertain or our understanding of a pathology is a little bit uncertain. 
doesn't mean you can't help someone. So, so just zoom out a little bit and understand that there is a person coming to you. They're in pain. How are you going to help this person get back to their life or get back to their meaningful or valued activities. That's really all you need to do. And so you can use a bunch of different interventions within that or communication styles or or whatever you want in order to develop a rapport, to develop a therapeutic alliance, get that person's trust, and then help that person to return to their life as best as you can. Now, you don't need to do it in a way that a, a particular social media guru tells you to do it. There are there are many different ways to go about doing this, all right? So the end result is the main thing, honestly. So as long as you're not selling bullshit and stuff that's deliberately wrong and stuff that can perhaps be harmful, then I'm okay with using a bunch of different techniques. I'm even okay with manual therapy. I don't know if that's controversial these days, but you are allowed to use manual therapy in your clinical practice if it's wrapped up in the right context context and the right messaging. You are allowed to give three sets of 10. That's fine as well. You are allowed to use TheraBand. You are allowed to give an upright row. You are allowed to give an empty can exercise. You are allowed to just give one or two or three exercises and you don't have to progress them every single week and they don't have to get a gym membership and they don't have to to, to do hypertrophy type training, but right? you don't have to do power training. So there's, there's, there's just so many avenues within physiotherapy, right? Which is a profession, not an intervention to interact with a person with pain and try and help that person as best as you can to try and return that person to their, to their best life. And I know that sounds like a basic kind of 21st century thing to say, but that's, that's the business that we're in. We're in the business of helping people live their best life. There's a little, there's a caption for you. After this episode goes live, I think upright rows with yellow bands is going to sweep across physiotherapy clinics across the world. Uh, Normalize, normalize upright rows with yellow bands. Any final tips for clinicians working with individuals with any type of shoulder pain, really? I mean, it could be you know, this umbrella or other shoulder pain as well? Um, it's hard. Treating people with pain is hard. And the shoulder is no different, but the shoulder has a reputation as being the most complicated uh, joint in the body because it's the most mobile, blah, 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 blah. All the surgeons will tell you it's the most mobile, which means it's the most vulnerable to injury. And, you know, that had, there is a case for that. Shoulder pain presentations are the third most common uh, clinical presentation that we'll see in primary practice. So dealing with people with shoulder pain is hard. Dealing with the complexity of pain is hard and the psychology and the social dimensions of pain is hard. Dealing with the, the biological and the physical aspects of it is hard as well. So I'm just going to reiterate what I said a moment ago. Just zoom out. If you're struggling with the evidence, take a macroscopic approach to helping somebody with pain. You d- like the more we analyze, the more we focus in on a t- one or two variables, the harder we make it, in my opinion, or the more we are just looking at the tip of the iceberg when there are all these factors underneath the water that you can't see. So gain the person's trust, give them some sort of movement-based exercise to do, maybe progressively make it harder over time, try and avoid using nocebic language as best you can, try and promote optimism, try and promote good expectations of recovery, list out all the different ways that exercise therapy or physiotherapy management might be just as beneficial as surgery and as injection therapy. Tell them, be accurate about timeframes. This is going to take probably three to six months or maybe more. Do not expect miracle cures here. A flare-up 
three weeks down the line, four weeks down the line, doesn't mean that you're not getting better. We need to zoom out and look at the greater progress that you have made. When I first saw you, you could only abduct your arm 90 degrees. Now you've got 150 degrees, right? When I first saw you, your manual muscle tests were three out of five. Now they're five out of five. Or your, or your our, our dynamometry testing was this. Now it's this. You could lift five, five kilos. Now you can lift 10. So sort of come back to these objective measures that a patient can see that they're improving by. So you can keep incentivizing that person to keep going down the pathway of non-surgical therapy. So I'm sort of I'm harping on a little bit now, but zoom out a little bit, try and respect the complexity of pain, respect the complexity of shoulder pain, but simplify as best you can by zooming out and understanding that all that's all that complexity, perhaps just the tip of the iceberg, and there's many different ways that you can actually help somebody return to their life. And I think that's that's the crux of dealing with somebody, not just with shoulder pain, but with any form of pain. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Shoulder Physio Podcast. If you want more information about today's episode, check out our show notes at www.shoulderphysio.com. If you liked what you heard today, don't forget to follow and subscribe on your podcast player of choice and leave a rating or review. It really helps the show reach more people. Thanks for listening. I'll chat to you soon. The Shoulder Physio Podcast would like to acknowledge that this episode was recorded from the lands of the Ugamba people. I also acknowledge the traditional custodians of the lands on which each of you are living, learning and working from every day. I pay my respects to elders past, present and emerging and celebrate the diversity of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples and their ongoing cultures and connections to the lands and waters of Australia.